Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Genesis. Uh, there's a couple of passages, um, but listen now for the word of the Lord. From Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. And a man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. From chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, and verse 21. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And a man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. Verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Uh, My name is Yuna. I want to welcome you to our service today. So I wanted to introduce our guest speaker, Pastor Juan Kwok. Um, As it's listed in the bulletin, um, he serves as a church planting catalyst in the North American Mission Board. And for the past 10 years, he served as the lead pastor of a church um, called Maranatha Grace Church. And he's here today with his wife, Diane, and three, two, like ones in Sunday school, of his five Kwoklings. He is from Rutgers, an an avid fan of Rutgers athletics. And actually, a fun fact, um, Diane, his wife, and I went to college together. And 20 years ago, I don't know if you remember, but 20 years ago, uh, Diane and Juan were actually responsible for Sam and I's first date. Um, They invited us for lunch. We did go there for lunch. And then all of a sudden, they had to leave to go to the DMV. Um, And so we were left to do, like to do what? Uh, I guess I think we went to go watch our first movie together. So they are responsible for bringing us together. I told um, our kids about it. They, had, like, they just were not that impressed by the story. I guess they didn't quite understand the concept. So it's my pleasure to introduce Pastor Juan Kwok, who will be giving us the word today. Hello, pra- uh, Graceway Presbyterian. Sorry. Uh, the reason why I almost slipped there is because, um, I'm just going to put this here. 20 years ago or so, I uh, was called to be a minister of the gospel at this budding, fledgling church called Praise Presbyterian Church English Congregation. And for about a year, I had the privilege um, of serving alongside some very faithful saints, many of which are here today, and that's a, a, a great encouragement uh, to me. My time here at Praise was short. It was, it was about a year, but it was very pivotal in my sanctification. And I hopefully, uh, I, I hopefully I played some small part in the sanctification of some of you here as well. Um, Pastor Dave and Kyung Samunim, that's the Korean side of me. There are vestiges of it in, in me. Uh, we're praying for you. We're praying for wisdom. And uh, I remember back in 2003 or so when I was in a really, when my family was in a really rough Patch. Uh, I remember seeing Pastor Dave uh, worshiping with us when we were kind of burying our, our second daughter, and uh, that was a great encouragement. I've never forgotten that, and so I thank you. So we're praying for you, and um, thank you for being here. Um, it's good to be back at Rutgers. I'm a, a Rutgers Scarlet Knight. Um, 
Greg Schiano is back, and some of you are probably like, please, don't even mention it. Um, yesterday we had a huge win. Uh, we decked the hall, right? Um, I'm very tempted to start an RU chant right now, but my son will uh, be very embarrassed, so um, I won't do that. Um, today I have three points uh, in my message, and I hope that this um, message will help you understand the scriptures better. But most of all, I pray that it will deepen your love, our love um, for the Lord, and lead to uh, obedience to him. Uh, These are the three points, and I think they'll be projected. Point number one, how different things were. Point number two, how disgraceful things became. Point number three, how delightful things will be. Uh, I'm a Baptist preacher, so alliteration is part of my, uh, my MO. So um, as we continue, let's, let's bow our heads in prayer one more time. Almighty God, we are in your presence um, because of your mercies, as Charles led us and reminded us um, just a moment ago. Father, you know where we've been this past week. I don't know where these folks have been. Uh, you know where our hearts are right now. So by your mercies, um, please make your truth, make your love and grace very very prominent in our minds and our hearts this morning and afternoon. Lord Jesus, only you have the power to save and to sanctify, and so that's what we cry out for. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts here together today be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O Lord, our unshakable rock and our great Redeemer. Amen. How different things were. The passages were pretty short, so I'll reread them as we hit the points. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet they felt no shame. In the, in the Bible's account of creation, found in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we read this epic account. We read uh, this account of God's blueprint, let's say, for humanity. And in this account, we read of a people We read of their purpose, and we also read of a place. I don't know about you, but when you hear of epic narratives, epic stories, um, your minds might rush immediately to uh, Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Uh, I know my daughter right now is thinking of Harry Potter because she is a Potter maniac. Um, I don't know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, I've been watching with my family... Uh, a really wonderful Star Wars kind of, uh, I don't know what to to call it, but um, have you guys been watching The Mandalorian? No? Okay. This is the way, (laughs) right? Um, We're we're really enjoying it. Um, So there are stories out there that are wonderful, but the Bible really tells us the most epic of stories because in the account of creation, um, we have not only the origins and the history of humanity, We have the story of God and the story of his redemptive plans. And New Year is coming around, so I'm sure some of you are going to be, or most of you are going to be starting up in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 again, right? Your Bible reading plans. It it, it starts in the beginning. And we're not going to get into this powerful creation narrative this morning, but many of us are familiar that God spoke the heavens and the earth into creation out of nothing. And as he does this, what, what is the resounding kind of phrase we hear? We hear that he saw that it was good. But at the climax of this creation, scriptures reveal to us 
that God formed humanity. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. And we can read that verse and just kind of pass through it quickly, but the, the word, uh, the Hebrew word, to formed, really conveys a powerful image. It, it conveys to us this picture of a master potter fashioning, modeling, molding clay into a particular shape. Now, there are some great works of art out there, you know, uh, pottery, but God didn't merely stop with clay statues like the 8,000 or so terracotta soldiers out in Xi'an, China, right? Uh, Back in 1974, uh, archaeologists unearthed 8,000 or so soldiers, um, each with a unique face. These soldiers were, 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 um, were made by uh, the king, the emperor of the Qin dynasty. Well, he had his, you know, his, his people make these things because he wanted protection in the afterlife. And this was a magnificent archaeological find. But compare lifeless clay soldiers to the person sitting next to you behind you. This is who God formed. Genesis 2.7 says, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And it wasn't merely physical life. It was mental and emotional, relational, and even spiritual life, of course. God created a people for himself. And he created these people in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. What, what does it mean to be created? The Latin phrase is imago Dei. I can go on and on about this, but I'll leave that to Pastor Dave in subsequent weeks. Um, but it, it, essentially, at the nub of it, it means that God shared some of his attributes with us. And therefore, we resemble him in certain ways. That, that's... That's breathtaking. That's, that's amazing. God's people were created and they were given a purpose. Their purpose was to reflect God, to reflect him in his beauty and his majesty, his, his brilliance, right? We, we in, for those of you who are younger, of the younger crowd, we, we rep God, right? You know, we rep our Rutgers, Scarlet, you know, the, the block R's on our cars, right? I think Shiano said, put, the, put them on your friends' cars and strangers' cars. I'll stop talking about Rutgers sports, okay? Um, but God created this people. He gave them this divine purpose to rep him, to reflect him. And, and God blessed them, right? He said, be fruitful, be, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And as you do this, you are my ambassadors. You represent me. And what about the place? Well, Genesis clues us in on the place. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. We, 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 we didn't read the account, and we're not going to, but if you were to read the entire creation account, you would get this panoramic view of this garden known as Eden. And we would know, or perhaps we do know, that it it would be the dwelling place of humanity. And Eden was no slum. 
It wasn't a shanty town, right? It, it, it's, it was a place that would have put Montgomery Township, West Windsor, Plainsboro, to shame. That's where God places his people whom he has given a divine purpose to. And at this point, the writer of Genesis remarks that God beheld all that he had made and declared it at this point not to only be good, but even very good. God saw everything, beheld it. It was very, very good. It seems like commentators tell us that God finishes his glorious creation and then he, he looks at what he's done and he says, man, that's good. <laughs> that's really good. Have you guys ever done that? Like cooked a great meal, right? Husbands, maybe you, 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 know, you kind of put something together for the family, for your wife, and you're like, honey, wasn't that good? <laughs> you know? um, or, or, or you perhaps you aced the final yesterday. Any students here? Yeah, a good number of you. And you just, man, I didn't even study for that, but oh, I, I just, I killed it. Man, that was good. That's what God seems to be doing here. He saw that it was very good. And in the verse that we read earlier, first one, Moses describes in simple and yet profound words how different things were. How, how in one of the ways that things were different were, was Genesis 2.25. The man and his wife, naked, no shame. Think about that. I don't know many of you, um, so I'm not quite sure what your perspectives are, what your attitude is on nakedness and nudity, bearing the body, but I would venture to say that most of you are probably kind of squeamish about it, right? Like, if, if you were naked right now, right here and right now, don't think about that too much, you'd probably be deeply embarrassed and um, ashamed by your nakedness. Why? For the obvious reason that there's something very revealing about being naked. You're exposed. You're vulnerable before others. When I was a kid, um, around eight years old or so, uh, my older cousin, Chungmin, he, um, he told me this joke, and I didn't quite get it until I was much older. He said, Juan, if you were caught in a burning building in your, in your home and it was burning down and you had no towel or clothing to cover your body as you ran out of the house naked, what part of your body should you cover? Right? I was eight years old. I said, hmm, I thought about it for a little while. I said, go out like this, chunk, right? He'd be like, hmm, no, stupid. (laughs) You should do this, right? And I was like, why would you cover your face? I I didn't get it. But years later, I would get it because of the shame, because of the exposure. Getting back to the text, what did we read? Adam and Eve were buck naked, (laughs) but they felt no shame. And this is noteworthy because it's not merely their physical nakedness that's most crucial for us to hone in on. Because the fact of the matter is, they were so much more naked than just physically. They weren't just in the buff frolicking around in the garden unencumbered by clothing. The man and his wife were naked before each other, before creation, before God in this paradise where they dwelled. There was full disclosure. 
There was complete and utter openness. They were vulnerable, and yet there's this childlike innocence being experienced in their existence. And the reason this was possible, the reason things were so different, was because there was nothing to hide. There was nothing to be ashamed of, no skeletons in the closet. There was no rap sheet. There were no prior addictions. There was no promiscuity. There was no reason for fear or shame or insecurity because there was no sin. And that moves us to point number two, how disgraceful things became. Things would change very drastically for Adam and Eve. They would go on from a state of blissful, naked, and unashamed existence and relationship with one another, with their creator God, to being naked and ashamed and even fearful. Genesis 3-7, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings, loincloths for themselves. What happened here? Why are they covering up all of a sudden? Well, the super, not so long, but the long story super short reveals to us that they had gone against God's clear instructions. Genesis 2 tells us that God gives them directives not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they disobeyed God. Now, some of you might be skeptical or more of a skeptical kind of wiring, And perhaps you might even be cynical about this part of the Bible's account. I tend to be a a skeptical person, and that leads me often to cynicism. I I doubt, I doubt, I doubt, so that makes me get to a place where I, you know, question motives and so on and so forth. And it's not a bad thing to, 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 it's not always wrong, it's not bad to, to think critically, to think hard and deeply about faith and the things of God, I often, for me, it it shores up my faith. It strengthens my assurance of, of my salvation, my relationship with God. But too often, cynicism will lead us to a place that will result in us drawing unhealthy and even unbiblical conclusions about God and his character. So if you are that cynic or that skeptic, you might be inclined to think, What's the big deal here? They chomped on some really, really fresh, yummy fruit. You know, the other day I had pomegranates and they were so good. And yesterday I had Asian pears and they were so juicy and delicious. I mean, why would God, creating these things, blessing Adam and Eve, why would he withhold such good things from his highest created order? Theologically speaking, and we're not going to get into it much, he created this covenant. God established a covenant of works. Right? There were stipulations and parameters that Adam and Eve were, were told to live within, but for what purpose? So that they would not experience contentment? No. These stipulations and parameters were given to them so that they would experience flourishing and blessing. But because, right, uh, in, in our wisdom, we start believing or thinking that God is a Grinch. We start thinking that he's, he's out to steal away Christmas. And ironically speaking, um, often we find ourselves at kind of 
two extremes. Sometimes God is a Grinch who holds out. Sometimes he's the cosmic Santa Claus who needs to give and give and give because I've done this and done that and so on and so forth, right? We're just so fickle. But this is a problem, a massive problem in our view of God. Because God was not acting like a cosmic killjoy towards Adam and Eve. He wasn't, you know, just giving them an insurance policy, insurance policy out of hell, right? Through the pearly gates. That's not the God of the Bible. And we need to understand this deeply, right? The Bible says, I came that they may have life and have it, how? Abundantly. The psalmist writes, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. There's, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And in the case of Adam and Eve, they're people created in God's, uh, God's highest order of creation. They're given a glorious and awesome purpose to, to be God's ambassadors, right? They were placed in this paradise. God didn't just create and then set things in motion and then remain disinterested and Aloof. He created them for relationship together and relationship with him. And this was all a part of his brilliant design. You know, even Adam and Eve, right? Like, why did God provide Adam this helper suitable? I don't know. Jonathan Edwards, one of the great theologians, he he refers to this as the humility of creation. God, had, God was, right, he was the ultimate parakaleo, right, the one who comes beside, who, 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 who helps. Adam didn't need anyone else, and yet God hooks Adam up with this beautiful wife inside and out, right? She was Proverbs 31 and Titus 2 before it even existed, and the scriptures reveal that he's delighted with Eve, right? This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. In our language, that's, whoa, she's hot, right? She's like, thank you, God, finally, right? Adam gets this beautiful wife. Eve gets this godly stud of a husband who's not always, you know, on ESPN and just, you know, he's actually picking the restaurants that, that you know, you want to go to, right? He's not leaving it to you saying, oh, honey, you pick, you know, I, I want to please you, right? And, and, you know, his motives are just laziness, right? Because I'm being vulnerable and transparent here, okay? (laughs) This is where they were until the fall. One moment they're naked and unashamed, and in the next, they're fearful and ashamed. Why? Because they gained this knowledge as their eyes were opened. And knowledge is good. But knowledge, this knowledge, was not good for them. It was not appropriate for them. It was an experience of of, of moral knowledge, is how theologians kind of present it to us. And some of you, again, might be thinking, well, wouldn't that mean that they're in a better place, right? It's not good to remain in ignorance. I agree. I wholeheartedly agree. It's not good to remain in ignorance for the most part with most things. But in this case, Adam and Eve did not experience this maturing, this growing up, this enlightening, because it wasn't God's will for them. It wasn't God's desire. It was inappropriate for them to have. And 
I can give you many examples. I'll, I'll give you one, right? Sometimes, and you'll understand this especially so as parents, sometimes it's just not right for your kids to know certain things, right? Like when your kid is 10 years old, you don't want to start talking to that kid about, you know, all the, the, the for instance, the, the sexual kind of brokenness that's out there. Maybe you do in the appropriate manner and ways. But we're living in a day and age where, um, you know, things are just hypersexualized, right? And, and what, what scientists and doctors, uh, experts, are finding um, are that in these hypersexualized societies, children are experiencing puberty at an earlier age, right? The onset of puberty is coming earlier and earlier. Uh, a Penn State study, 2017, said high-stress situations, right, such as childhood sexual abuse, can lead to increased stress hormones that jumpstart puberty ahead of its standard biological timeline. ScientificAmerican.com says other investigators have implicated intense stresses in childhood, such as sometimes occurs with the absence of the biological father in the home, or if a child is sensitive to conflict around her as possible causes of earlier puberty. Although the biological mechanism of action is not known, what is evident is that there is a symphony of moving parts to make puberty happen instead of a solo actor. We're wired. Everything's connected. And so if we're emotionally, mentally getting this information, right, our bodies are kind of experiencing this jump-starting of, of puberty. And Adam and Eve are experiencing something like that here. And they're experiencing, because of that, a disgrace, a shame. The Song of Solomon, chapter 2-7, Solomon says it a bunch of times, right, just to give you some scriptural... Um, Example, it's a young woman of Jerusalem. I charge you by the gazelles and the wild does of the field. Do not stir up or awaken until the appropriate time. We know what that passage tells us? It, it, it tells us that God is not saying, I'm going to withhold it from you. He's saying, I'm going to withhold it from you until the appropriate time. But in this case, it wasn't appropriate for them. And in their wisdom, quote-unquote, their fallen wisdom, they experience this corrupted sense of, of knowledge and, and even esteem. And so what we see here is not an enlightening of their minds, but it was actually, in fact, a darkening of their hearts and a corruption of their souls. And as they partook of this fruit, paradise was lost. But paradise wasn't merely a place. Paradise was a state of being. The state of perfect relationship with God, their creator. The state of being God's people with this purpose in this place. And now it was all Undone. They were like God, but they couldn't handle the knowledge they had that only God, the sovereign omnipotent one, can handle. And so they're ashamed and they're disgraced. I don't know where you guys are at, but my hunch is there are probably lingering effects, lingering 
or perhaps prominent um, experiences, perhaps even now of shame and disgrace that have led you to some pretty dark places, right? Whether it be through disappointments or in yourself or others that have kind of spiraled you down into this place of feeling disillusion, feeling despair. Shame leads us to scary, scary places. Shame leads us to suicidal thoughts. And you know, I was doing some reading because I, I, I watched a documentary online of how um, South Korea has become the suicide capital of the world. Did you know that? If you look at like the top 20 countries, um, suicide rates, South Korea is the only country, and I think it's close to number one or way up there, um, that's a part of the OECD, which is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. So essentially, it's, it's one of the economic powerhouses in the world, and yet the suicide rate amongst men is higher, but amongst children and teens ages 12 through 18 is unbelievably, sadly high. Why? Because of the shame that students are enduring and bearing because they can't, they can't do as well on that one yearly test to get into that junior high, which will allow them entrance into that senior high, which will allow them entrance into that college or university, that prestigious school, which will get them that job that they need to have or they will be the shame of their family, their community. This is tragic, what Adam and Eve experience here. And it's most tragic because it reveals to us that instead of turning to their creator, God, to find answers, to find love and, and joy and security and peace and, and, and all these good things, they feel fear and shame and disgrace. What's happening here? They're beginning to harbor ill will, resentment towards God. They've fallen. There's sin in their hearts. And so in spite of God, instead of them hearing God's voice, after doing all they could to hide from God and, and discovering they couldn't hide from God, because God sees all things, and God knew where they were, after trying to cover up their disgrace with fig leaves, which, which they made into loincloths, right? They find no comfort. They find no safety. Because they're disgraced. They've lost their sense of respect, their, their esteem. They've lost their honor and dignity, right? Not only for each other, which they did, they lost their self-esteem. You guys think about that? You lose your self-respect because of shame. They lost their esteem for one another, and their relationship gets complicated and broken. But then they also lose their respect and, and esteem for their creator God. And, and, and there are consequences, right, to their fall and rebellion. God makes it clear. He says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing and pain. You shall bring forth children. 
Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. He shall rule over you. To Adam, he says, you know, um, by thorns in pain, you shall eat of, eat of it all the days of your life, right? Cursed is the ground. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Finance, guys, your investments are going to fail you because of the fall, <laughs> right? You coders and developers, you're going to write some pretty bad code because of the fall. You're going to have to work by the spread. You can experience the, the sweat of your, of your brow because of the fall which brought upon Adam and Eve and creation a curse, which broke things badly which broke their relationship with their father. And what about Adam and Eve? You know, you know the account, and I'm not going to get into it, but what do they start doing? It's like, what happened, Adam? You know, when, you, when you're experiencing shame, what do you want to do? And this is kind of a shame, too. You don't want to experience it yourself. You want to displace it, right? So what does Adam do? God, the woman you created for me... She, she brought the temptation to me. What does Eve do? God, the serpent that you created. I mean, they blame each other in a sense, but ultimately they blame their creator, God, for the mess they are in. They throw each other under the bus and they, they throw God under the bus. But for me, as, as a dad, what's really sad about this passage and Genesis 3, 8 through 10 is, is, in my estimation, the saddest passage in the entire Bible because God searches them out. He goes to them and he says, where, where are you? And Adam and Eve, they hear the voice of God and they hide. The reason why I say this as a parent, as a father, is because um, those of you who are parents, you know parenting can be uh, on the one hand, extremely exhilarating, right? To the nth degree, it's just incredible to see your children growing and learning and loving and even hurting at times and learning um, what it means to just um, have their character kind of etched out and, and worked on. But it could also be extremely challenging, Right? And for me and Diane, what we've tried to do to the best of our ability with a lot of prayer and a lot of counsel from others is just teach them how to be thankful, teach them how to respect authority and fear authority in the right ways, and just, um, you know, to to love and um, to be patient and so on and so forth. But for us, I think the biggest kind of most important thing that we try to make happen in our family is, is just trust and communication. That's not happening here with Adam and Eve. But when I think of getting, ever getting to a place where my kids, instead of hearing my voice, hey, Bethany, sorry for calling you out, and instead of her saying, yeah, Dad, I'm here up in my room, her hiding and fleeing from me, I think that would be the, the saddest thing I could ever experience as a parent. My oldest is a freshman in college, and she's coming back this week, and we're pretty pumped about her being back home. And 
I remember when she was three years old. I don't know why I asked this question of her. Perhaps some of you dads ask weird questions of your kids. But I said, um, I said, Madeline, you know, um, are you going to marry one day? Right? <laughs> She's three years old. And she said, Daddy, I'm not going to get married because I have you as my husband. Right? And I was like, well, all right. You know? I remember looking at my wife saying, all right, I can, I can deal with that. When she was six, I asked her the same question. And then uh, at that age, she told me she, she, that she wasn't going to get married because it was gross. Right? <laughs> I'm not going to get married, Dad. It's, it's gross. Um, when she turned nine, I asked her the same question again. And then she told me that um, she'd only marry the guy that I approved of. Right? That mom and, mom and dad approved of. And I was like, wait, this is still, we're, all, we're still off on a good trajectory. She's 18 now, and I, I'm afraid to ask her that question. <laughs> But my hopes and prayers are that she will find mom and dad trustworthy enough to be able to share with us when the time comes that she's interested in that boy or that guy and ask questions and seek out just wisdom on this thing we call dating and and courtship or whatever you want to call it. How sad it is if our children can't trust us and come to us and share their deepest and even darkest fears and struggles and and even sins because they're hiding, because of their shame. And, and, And real quick, this is a freebie, but parents, don't shame your kids. I'm a hypocrite. I've shamed my kids too much. But you know what the gospel tells us? God doesn't shame us to repentance. He doesn't say, shame on you, shame on you, shame on you, and that's why you need me. What does he do? He sends Christ, who takes the shame off of us. The Bible says, God's, repent- God's kindness leads us to repentance. That leads us to our last point. How delightful things will be. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. In this passage, we see signs and glimmers of hope that God gives to them, but also to us. First, he covers them. Sure, he gave them the boot from the garden. Yeah, because that's a consequence of sin, of the fall. But he covers them. And then we see that in the passage of how, like, uh, you know, the serpent will be crushed. That's what the theologians call the proto-angelion. It's the shadow, it's, it's the glimmer of the ultimate and true and everlasting hope that we will see somewhere down the line in this biblical narrative. God is giving us, even in Genesis 3, this early message that in the fullness of time, just at the right moment, he would send the perfect son of man, the lamb of God, without blemish, who takes away the shame, the sin of those who were lost, those who were hiding, those who were trying to, 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 to cover the sin on their own. And that's what God would do. He would reconcile us to himself and restore us as his people with this incredible, glorious, divine purpose, and he would give us an even greater place that we're still waiting for that would blow away Eden. And he would do it by sending his son, his perfect son. 
And yet you know the story, but if you don't, in a nutshell, because it's Christmas time, he would come through Mary. But Mary would be found pregnant without really having a husband. That's pretty shameful. And then he'd be born. He'd be born and he'd be placed shamefully in a manger, in a feeding trough. And then he would grow up with riches. And No, he, he grew up a poor boy from Nazareth, of all places. Shameful place. And he would grow up without a father is what we, the Bible seems to tell us. Single parent home. And then as he would go and as he would begin his public ministry, you know what happens? His family becomes very dysfunctional because they all think he's a freak. They all think he's crazy. He's proclaiming himself to be the son of God. God himself. What a shame. No place to lay his head. No possessions. Nothing much at all. And then after doing all this incredible, wonderful, beautiful work, touching Embracing lepers, the blind, raising people to life. Being the most loving man to ever live. Instead of being worshipped and venerated, he would go to the cross. And he would hang upon that cross. And the World Testament makes it clear, cursed is the man who hangs upon a tree. And guess what? And we'll end here. Uh, A lot of depictions and artwork, you see that strategically placed loincloth, that covering. No, he would be stripped bare. And he would experience the shame and disgrace, the nakedness, because of our nakedness, that we deserve to experience. And he would take it upon himself and take it to the cross. And the Bible says that God would make him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And the scriptures reveal to us that for the joy that was set before him, he would endure this cross, despising, guess what? The shame. And the Old Testament prophets would tell us, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. You won't be confused or confounded. You will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth, the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. That's a message for us here today. As we await his second coming, the second advent. And my call to you, brothers and sisters, perhaps those of you who don't know Christ, is what are you doing right now to hide your shame? What are you covering yourselves with? Cry out to Christ and allow him to cover you and to bring you home. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, you know even my heart. You know where I'm at. Every time I stand before your people and those who are in need of Christ Jesus, you know that there's so much shame and disgrace that that I have that I know in and of myself disqualifies me to even say the name of Jesus. 
But thanks be to God through the gospel, through what Christ has done, I can stand up here and proclaim your truths, proclaim your, your grace, your loving kindness, your steadfast loving kindness which knows no end. Thank you, Father, that you give us Christ Jesus. And I pray for those who are here today who are struggling and wrestling and fighting this the flesh and, 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 and just getting, going to places that aren't right, remembering their past identities rather than really relishing and just being assured by their present identity. Father, just I pray that you would remind them and wash away the guilt and the shame and the disgrace. Use each other in this church, Father, to speak words of, of love and grace and truth. And for those of us who do not know the gospel, I pray that you would work in hearts, that you would renew minds, and by your power save even this morning, this afternoon. Thank you for this time. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.